Hello and welcome back. My name's James Marley. I'm a co-founder of Livewire Markets and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists and industry experts and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. In our last two episodes, we've delved into the processes and portfolios of Australia's leading growth and income investors. Today, we're zooming out and taking a look at some of the burning issues regarding the state of the Australian economy. Is there some relief ahead on the cost of living? What are the implications of Australia's growing population on housing affordability? And should we be concerned about China's spluttering growth engine? My guest today has been publicly described as a living legend, one of a kind and a diamond in the rough. Dr Shane Oliver, Chief Economist at AMP, recently celebrated 40 years of tenure and the public show of appreciation for the work he has done to educate Australians on all matters of the economy was nothing short of spectacular. Shane is here with me today, armed with his three favourite charts, as well as some of the lessons he's picked up over his career in economics. Now, if you're an Apple podcast or Spotify's user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified when new episodes are available. If you're not a Livewire subscriber yet, we'd love to have you on board. Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Now with that, let's get on with the show. Shane, welcome. Economists usually get lambasted for making wrong predictions, but the outpouring of support and appreciation for your decades of work was quite incredible. It must have been quite humbling. It, it certainly was. I didn't expect anything like that. Uh, James, and, and thanks for having me on the on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, forty years sort of creeps up on you, as they say. The days go slowly, but the years go fast, and suddenly you find you're there. But uh, yeah, that that uh, messages I got was just amazing, and, and the effort my colleagues, including Diana Messina, went to to put together a, a video and a um, a night to celebrate it. I, I thought it was just amazing. So I was overwhelmed, and it just made me think how lucky I was to work in such a great industry and work with such great people. I was chatting internally with some people as to why there was such that appreciation uh, shown for you. And, you know, when I read your articles and listen to you uh, present, and even my father comments from time to time on your articles about how you you really do a great job of bridging the gap um, and making the content easy to consume, I also have a view, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you tend to be glass half full, which I think people enjoy as well. That's probably right. I, I, th- I think I realised long ago that there is a market out there for economists, for investment specialists, uh, strategists who can communicate in a, in a simple fashion and also do so in a way that exudes a degree of optimism. I know there's lots of people out there constantly predicting some disaster, always looking for what's wrong with the latest inflation numbers, why we can't really believe the decline we're seeing or why it will keep going higher or why it's all terrible. Uh, Whereas if you look back through history, uh, most of the time, not always, most of the time, things turn out okay. We move on from the tough patches. Um, The Aussie share market since 1900 has risen or had a positive return eight years out of ten. So if you're constantly out there talking about the negative all the time, then you will probably, you might get your two years out of 10 where you'll be right, but the rest of the time you'll be a complete and you'll miss out on those gains. So, but if you can't communicate some degree of optimism in a way that people can understand it, then there's not much point either. So you've got to combine the two, some degree of optimism, uh, but do so in a way that's easy for people to understand and relate to. 
Well, I think 2023 was, I think people felt was a pretty tough year and um, certainly there were a lot of headlines around recessions mm. and people adjusting to the rapid rise in interest rates, high cost of living. And so I think it was a, an uncertain year for people thinking about the economy and what might lie ahead. Bringing un- inflation under control without crashing the economy into recession was labelled as, as basically mission impossible here in Australia and in the US. How close do you think central banks are on – how close do you think they are to delivering on that outcome? To be honest with you, I think they're actually pretty close. And that's why markets have been able to rally from the lows of 2022. It was obviously a bit of a, a bit of a hole there in October of 2023. So we sort of went up, then came down. Uh, then we've gone up again since. And many markets have gone to record highs. Even the Aussie share market had a high uh, early in February, uh, record high. So I think – That reflects the the fact that central banks are close to getting inflation back under control. It all seemed fairly hopeless 18 months or so ago. Uh, But we have seen inflation rates around the world come down from 8 to 11%. We were at the lower end of that. Uh, Europe and UK, they were at the higher end. Uh, Now those rates are around 3 to 4%. Uh, So we're almost back to the 2% globally or 2.5% in Australia, which central banks regard as target. Uh, so I think that's been a very positive achievement. And they've been able to do it without crashing economies. Uh, I must admit, I've been worried along the way. We, we've been thinking it's probably the biggest risk-facing investors, recession, and that risk is still there. But I am also conscious of something that happened 30 years ago. They raised interest rates dramatically in 94, 1994. Everyone thought the sky would fall, a bit of a dip in markets. But then the second half of the 1990s proved to be pretty good. Uh, central banks were able to cut interest rates as inflation came down. It was sort of a good type of easing rather than a recessionary environment. And, yeah, there's reasonable chance that they'll be able to pull it off again. Uh, I, I think several things have helped them here. The initial surge in inflation was supply-side distortions caused by the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, floods in Australia, and obviously through time some of those things have um, reversed themselves. Now we're dealing with high services sector inflation, uh, and we've had very tight labour markets. But again, we're seeing signs of labour markets coming off the boil, not collapsing, but coming off the boil, which will take pressure off services inflation eventually. So I, I think so far, so good. Central banks seem to be uh, achieving what, what many regarded as impossible just 18 months ago. In LiveWire's Outlook series, you, you published an article expressing a view that interest rates ha- have likely peaked. Is that still your base case? Our base case is that interest rates have likely peaked. Uh, it's, it's interesting to note that the debate in Europe and the US uh, is, is now completely balanced. It's in many cases, yeah, when do they start cutting rates? And they're saying, well, it's too early just yet. Uh, we still want more confidence uh, that inflation will head back to target and, and stay around that level. In Australia, we're lagging a little bit behind on that front. The central bank, the Reserve Bank, has said that they, in the most recent meeting anyway, they did consider raising rates again or leaving them on hold, they opted to leave rates on hold. So we've still got a bit of a bias in Australia towards higher rates by the Reserve Bank, but we think we've seen enough. Look at the uh, January inflation numbers, 3.4%. That's the monthly indicator. The high was 8.4%. We've come down a long way. Look at the rate that's prevailed on average over the last, uh, on a quarterly basis, over the last four or five months, it's uh, actually running about 0.6%. On a, on a rolling three-month basis. You multiply 0.6% by four, you get, guess what, two and a half. So you could argue that 
our inflation rate is already running around levels consistent with the Reserve Bank's inflation target, which is 2 to 3%. Now they say the midpoint, 2.5%, which I think ultimately will clear the way for the RBA to cut. Now, right here, right now, the Reserve Bank will be feeling happier, but they're probably still going to say we don't have the confidence yet to, uh, we don't have enough confidence yet to, to, to start thinking about rate cuts. But I think as long as we see these inflation numbers will remain on the lowish side, we will get there by mid-year and, if not then, by at least August, and then I think we'll start to see some rate cuts. When I was reading around to try and get a, a pulse for what the average Australian might have as the, the top of their lists of concerns around the economy, the thing that kept coming up was cost of living. Does this slowing of inflation start to flow through to, the, to, to households soon, or why are people still feeling so much pain? In economics, there's the thing between, like there's the, there's the flow and the stock or the level and the change. So the problem is that the level of prices had that huge jump higher. And we've now got a situation, though, where the rate of change in prices, 3.4% on the most recent inflation rate, or, or if you want to do like with like 4.1% in December, that's just below the rate of wages growth, 4.2%. So you could argue, well, wages growth is starting to edge above the rate of inflation. But the problem is that the level of, of prices went up so much relative to the level of wages over the last 12 months when you had inflation at 8% wages growth at 3 or something, uh, that people are still waiting for that gap to close. So I reckon, though, by the end of this year, if not then early, as we go into next year, people will start to feel a lot happier. But I can understand that right here, right now, they're not because they'll say, yeah, my wage has gone up, but it hasn't made up for that huge rise in prices that I've been seeing down at the supermarket over the last uh, 18 months. Yeah. Shane, just on staying with interest rates for a moment, markets are pricing in more rate hikes than central banks are currently forecasting. What do you think some of the spot fires are that could, could break out and force the RBA to ease more aggressively? Uh, is, is it unemployment which has started to tick up a little bit? Is that the main thing to watch? Yeah, roughly speaking, uh, well, if you go back a month ago uh, for the ECB and the Fed, the markets were anticipating seven to eight rate cuts, whereas the Fed was signalling maybe three this year. Now they've come more into line. Uh, In Australia, I think at one stage the market was expecting three rate cuts. Now it's about 1.7 when I I last looked. Uh, So a bit more than one, a bit bit less than two. And I'm talking about 0.25% moves here. Spot fires which could cause uh, a more aggressive RBA cutting cycle would be, yes, unemployment would be a big one. We have seen our unemployment rate rise from 3.4% in late 2022. It's now 4.1%. So it's clearly going up. The underemployment rate has also gone up. We've seen job vacancies as measured by the ABS, the Bureau of Statistics, fall for the last six quarters. So... It is quite conceivable that, yeah, with the unemployment rate now rising, that it'll just keep rising and that'll force a bigger reaction by the RBA. Uh, Another thing that could happen is maybe the inflation numbers continue to come down faster. So far, they have been falling faster than the Reserve Bank has forecast. That could force their hand, or you might get some sort of global accident. Uh, If you think back to the past... A lot of people do this. You look at all the Fed, the times the Fed has raised interest rates, they always keep going until there's a crisis, uh, whether it was the GFC or the tech wreck or um, maybe you'll get some sort of banking crisis in the US. There was a bit of, bit of concern about that last year. Um, so if that were to be the case and global markets jam up in some way, that could ricochet back to the RBA, forcing them to, to ease more and faster. Yeah. 
You mentioned there that inflation could slow down faster than anticipated. If we look at the last decade, the central banks spent the best part of that trying to actually ignite inflation and, and get it to, to come back to life uh, by lowering rates and stimulating economies. It effectively took a pandemic to get inflation up again. Why won't inflation just gravitate back towards those low levels that we experienced pre-pandemic? Well, that's the thing with economics. You, you don't have precise models here, so they've raised interest rates a lot. Uh, biggest rate hiking cycle since the 1980s, and that ended up <laughs> going from one extreme to the other. Uh, we ended up with massive unemployment and a sharp fall in inflation through that period. So there is a risk here that we that they may have gone too far, that uh, the impact of rate hikes has been delayed because of savings buffers built up through the pandemic, a desire to get out there and spend again and go on holidays and go to restaurants, along with more people being on fixed rates than normal. So that protected them for longer. Uh, so th- those things could suddenly all come to an end. People r- run down their savings buffers, you know, they get holidayed out and they, they, uh, all those people who are on fixed rates have switched over to variable and suddenly uh, the economy could then go from one extreme to the other. The inflation rate could go crashing through the target and ended up on the low side again. But I, I, I think that's unlikely. It's possible, but I think it's unlikely. And I, I, I tend to think we've come into a more inflation-prone world compared to the one we had pre-pandemic. Some of these things were starting to occur pre-pandemic, but I think they're now more evident. Um, We're seeing some sort of peak in globalisation. The old idea about removing tariff walls and protection, all that sort of stuff, is being reversed. Uh, That started to some degree with Trump in the US, but then you can see that right around the world that countries are no longer lowering the tariffs. If anything, they're edging up a little bit, the protective barriers. That means less competition globally. Secondly, uh, bigger government. Um, the solution to everything these days seems to be bigger government, uh, more regulation. You know, government should do something about it if it's not working. All the lessons of the 70s and 80s have been forgotten, which Ronald Reagan used to joke was something like the worst thing can poss- possibly happen to you is someone shows up from the government and says, I'm here to help. And so the pendulum has swung from very yeah, right-wing free markets, like in the era of Reagan, Thatcher, and they'll never admit it, Hawke and Keating. But that's that's where the pendulum went back then, to deregulation, smaller government, lower taxes, privatisation. It's now gone the other way, government solution to everything. Now, history tells us that when the government uh, tries to control everything, and I'm exaggerating a bit here, but much bigger role for government in the economy, that tends to be more inflationary. Uh, so that's a risk there. We're seeing ageing populations, less workers, more people in retirement, that means tighter labour markets and those sorts of things when you put them all together you know the other thing is more spending on defence talk of a cold war those sorts of things they they put upwards pressure on prices make the world somewhat more inflation prone than it was pre-pandemics that's why I think yeah inflation will come down we'll get it back to target but I don't think we'll go back into a world where we have inflation sustainably below target like we had uh, pre-pandemic. Yeah, I remember articles wondering if we'd ever see inflation ever again. Yeah, that's right. right. Uh, back in the uh, the 1970s and 80s, because people were saying, are we, are we ever going to get back to low inflation? So once these things, um, you, you go for a long period where you go to one extreme and you stay there forever and everyone gives up on forecasting higher inflation. This was the story up to 2020 or something like that. And then suddenly it all changes and then you're in a different world. And, and I think the world has become a little bit more inflation prone. I want to dive into some of the, the growth opportunities for, for Australia and, 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 and things that could keep Australia 
ticking along. The, the ABS medium forecast for net overseas migration is, is about an additional 3.4 million people over the next decade. Shane, why is a growing population needed to support economic growth in Australia? Well, a growing population means more people, which means more demand. And that's good for Australian companies because they sell more products and it keeps their top line revenue growth uh, solid. Uh, so, so that's very positive. Um, the other aspect is that uh, growing population means people coming in from different cultures and that results in a more dynamic economy. If I go to my local suburb and see all the restaurants there, it's a long way from where it was, say, 50 years ago when it was all very white. Uh, very much Anglo-y food. Now you've got a whole range, Asian, Anglo, fusions and what have you and all sorts of restaurants from different places. And, and so the, 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 it's also reflected in the economy. You've got people from different cultures, more dynamic economy. And obviously you know, immigrants come in, it also creates demand for things like housing and so on. Um, it also meets supply shortfalls. You know, the aged care sector probably wouldn't survive if we didn't have immigrants uh, coming in um, doing the stuff that Australians typically don't want to do. So I think by and large you have to conclude that immigration has been very positive for Australia and a danger in the current debate is that we go from one extreme to the other. You know, we've had this reopening boost. Immigration levels went through the roof. They probably few too many, few... Uh, a few too many all at once probably wasn't desirable because it's just accentuated a housing shortfall but by the same token we don't want to cut it back to levels which will actually damage our long-term growth potential in Australia the other aspect to mention is if you go to other countries around the world they have aging populations in many cases falling populations even China's population is now falling when that happens you know you've got to spend a lot more time looking after aged care, a lot more of your population has to be devoted to that. But if you can grow your population, um, it means an ongoing source of revenue for companies and the government, which helps fund uh, the fact that you are getting older Australians come through. So it, it eases, eases some of the pressures that flow from a, an ageing demographic. And so the situation Australia faces, because of high immigration levels, is far less dire than it is in big chunks of Europe, Japan and even China um, as their populations fall. So it's all about getting the balance right, as far as I'm concerned. And with the you know, housing affordability, I mentioned just the pressures households were feeling on cost of living. Mm. The other big topic is housing affordability. Does this you know, 3.4 million additional people, is that not going to just put increasing pressure on already expensive housing stock? Well, it will if we don't build enough homes. So we have to be able to build the homes. Uh, and I think I am happy in the sense that the government has now an objective to build uh, 1.2 million homes over the next five years and state governments seem to have signed up to that and they have to deliver to that. Uh, that's the sort of thing we need. Obviously, you can't build... 240,000 um, standalone homes every year, you know, houses. You, you, a lot of the big chunk of that has to be units and, so, and social housing and affordable housing. So as long as they can do that, then it, it will be manageable. That said, uh, I do think immigration levels over the last 12 months when we got to 520,000, that was probably too much. You've got to cut back to a more sustainable level. Uh, but I think if we can cut back to a more sustainable level, which... Government's talking about cutting it back to 240,000, which was the average level prior to the pandemic. I'd probably say 200,000. If you get it back to those sorts of levels, which I think the ABS is assuming on a longer-term basis, 
even though it is 3.2 million, it sounds like a lot. But if you spread it out year after year and you get your act together in terms of building the homes, making it easier for our developers, don't waste so much time um, delaying approvals, uh, encouraging more Australians to live beyond our capital cities, you do all those sorts of things, then I think it is manageable. Mm-hmm. And we won't, and we should be able to deal with the housing affordability crisis at the same time. Yeah. The other part you know, I talk about on the Australian growth part, uh, front is, you know, we obviously benefit from this proximity to China. It's been a boon for many parts of our economy, an amazing knock-on effect from our, 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 our mining companies. There are signs that China's growth engine is starting to splutter a bit. Is this something that you think we should be concerned about? Uh, yes and no. Uh, yeah, y- yes, we have something like 35% of our exports going to China, um, and so we are somewhat dependent on China. Uh, and it has certainly helped us over the last uh, last two decades. Uh, and a, uh, you know, a rapid decline in Chinese growth or you know, real recession in China or a breakdown in trade relations between Australia and China in the short term, if it occurred overnight, that would be a big problem for Australia. But I have a feeling that what will happen here is what we've seen happen in the past. We used to have a huge relationship with the UK, trade relationship with the UK. That shifted, then it was the US, then it was Japan, uh, now it's China. Coming up beneath that uh, has been strong growth in exports to places like Korea and India and so on. And we did see a hit in Australian exports to China through the pandemic. You know, all those issues we got into, our, into in relation with China and bans on things like lobster and wine and coal and copper, all this sort of stuff. And the share of Australian exports going to China fell 10 percentage points. But we found other markets for it. Most Australians wouldn't have even noticed it. But my, my take on it is that, yeah, if China gradually slows down, then we will gradually move on to other markets. And those markets are already evident. Uh, they're in other parts of Asia, India in particular, and I think we will sort of gradually sail on. But it also reminds us that we also need to focus on not just relying on someone buying our stuff, but also on productivity. Um, we need to find ways to make the most of the artificial intelligence revolution, which is currently underway. We need to encourage companies to invest more, and those sorts of things will give us this productivity pickup, much like we had in the 1990s and 2000, which can also help support Australian growth and get, just give you a buffer um, if anything does go wrong with the Chinese economy in the short term. So you think inve- investment in things like this, the, the, the uptake of artificial intel- intelligence is actually a, a skill set that Australia could participate in? Look, I, I think there's no doubt about that. And, and yeah, why is all this optimism about the US at the present? The US is this funny place that Every so often people write it off, oh, it's all hopeless. <laughs> Look at the US in the 70s. And then it re-emerges a little while later, partly because they're, they're very entrepreneurial. Um, other countries seem to miss that. I think the Chinese became very entrepreneurial uh, and you saw this tech revolution going on in China in recent times to the point where they were almost ahead of the US. Now, unfortunately, with the government uh, trying to control things more in China, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit in China might die down a, a bit. But that's not the case in the US. The US keeps trying to foster it the whole time, aren't they? Yeah, the US has this very free market approach to things, fosters new technology, lots of investors prepared to back it, uh, and that ultimately serves America very well. Uh, and you can see that in their profit numbers uh, recently and the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, yeah, sometimes it gets too hot, got to worry about that, but um, longer term it seems to pay off. Now, of course, we don't have the, uh, the, the massive hundreds of millions of people market that the US has, uh, but we have to make it easy for Australian companies and encourage them to adopt 
uh, new technologies when they come come along and artificial intelligence has to be a part of that. So it's something, yes, we do need to look at in Australia. We do need to do everything we possibly can to make sure our corporates are motivated to do these sorts of things and that it, that entails setting the right environment. You know, don't overly tax them, don't overly regulate them, make sure that the people coming out of our universities are well-educated to go into those companies. Yeah. Well, Shane, I was, I was going to get you to sum up your views on the economy, but I, I thought maybe a good way to do it was actually to limit the things that you can choose to to pick from. So you've been sharing your views on the economy for, for four decades. If you were only to get access to two or three indicators to give you a read on the economic outlook, which ones would you choose? Why would you choose them? And what are you telling you right now? And I gave this to you in advance to send over a, a couple of charts. So why don't we start with the first one, which... I've got here, which is consumer and business confidence. Yeah, these two I've been following for decades. Uh, I think the Westpac uh, Melbourne Institute measure of consumer confidence goes back uh, many, many decades. In fact, I I love data charts which go back as far as possible and the NAB business survey has been around for a long time as well. And so those two are key to me. I'm obviously consumer confidence because it's a good guide to how the consumer is feeling and the pressures on consumers. And, of course, right now it's still pretty weak. It, it's had a bit of a bit of an uptick lately but uh, on the back of talk of lower interest rates ahead, but it's still incredibly soft. So that's warning us that there's still a lot of pressure on consumers out there. Um, so far, businesses you know, still remain, you know, confidence levels for businesses are around average, roughly speaking, um, and business, co- business conditions are actually probably still a little bit, a, a, bit, a, a bit above average. So that's sort of telling us that, on the one hand, consumers are wary and nervous about things, but by the same token, business is telling us that they're still getting some spending through, uh, which tells me things haven't collapsed. Um, So it's telling me, basically, yes, high interest rates have done the job to slow things down, cool the consumer, um, but it's also telling me that at some point, interest rates will have to start coming back down again, otherwise that weakness in consumer conditions will flow through to weakness in business conditions at the same time. Um, So that... I love those indicators and I, th- I think one of the things that a lot of people miss in relation to economics is the, is the role played by sentiment, um, both on the – or animal spirits, as Keynes once called it, and both those that, that chart, um, consumer and business confidence, sort of encapture uh, animal spirits in relation to both consumers and businesses. So the, the consumers – Animal spirits are yet to awaken at the moment. They're, they're a little dormant. Yeah, they are a little dormant, but there is potential there. Once interest rates do start to come back down, I, I think you see some of this through the uh, earnings reporting season, that, that, that you will see a bit of a spring back in uh, spending, which is probably okay. When the, the spring back occurred coming out of the pandemic, we didn't have the capacity to meet it and we just got inflation. Uh, this time around, if uh, that spending spring back occurs as we go through into 2025 – perhaps by the lower tax rates, um, then you should see a decent spring back, which partly explains why some retail companies through the reporting season, yeah, they reported lower profits, JP Hi-Fi among them, uh, but the share market said, oh, it's not too bad. <laughs> There's better conditions ahead. Second chart you've brought, brought along is labour market underutilisation rates. Can you explain this one to me and why it's why you like it and what it's telling us? Well, this one uh, is well, underutilisation is basically unemployment plus underemployment. So it's people who don't have a job and 
people who have a job but want to work more hours. You have to look at the two. I think a big mistake the Reserve Bank made and other central banks made through the five years up until the pandemic was they only looked at unemployment and they said, oh, it's low, labour market's tight. Whereas when you've looked at underemployment, it actually tells you there's a lot of people out there who want full-time jobs but can't get them. Um, That explained why inflation through that period was so low. Now you've got a situation where the labour market is very tight. Us economists sometimes to the dismal and say, well, it has to go up a little bit higher. We need to see somewhat higher unemployment and somewhat higher underemployment uh, because the labour market's perhaps have been a bit too tight and that risks higher wages growth causing ongoing sticky inflation. Uh, But the good news is from these charts, if you want to call it that, is that the trend is going up slightly. So the labour markets are cooling, uh, which ultimately means that wages growth is not going to get out of control. We're not going to have a wage price spiral. We're not going back to the 1970s or anything like that. Final one, shares versus bonds and cash over the time. Not really an economic indicator, but um, a chart that I have seen you roll out a few times. Yeah, and I'll continue to roll that out. I, I, I think um, as an economist who works in investment markets, the rubber has to hit the road somewhere, and obviously it hits the road in relation to investing. This chart, which shows the um, the value of, say, $1 invested in 1900 if you reinvest that money in you get bank interest, you reinvest it in the bank account, you get uh, coupon payments on your bonds, reinvest it in, in bonds, and you get dividends on shares, reinvest them. So it shows the accumulated return, total return. And uh, what it shows is that the return out of shares swaps, I think it's something like around 12% or so return per annum uh, since 1900 out of shares versus bonds, 6 7%, uh, cash 4.5%. So and it shows it in level terms, the accumulated value. Now, of course, I know we don't have 120 years to live, um, but what it shows in exaggerated form is just that the magic of compound interest is just so overwhelming over time. Those returns will build on top of returns through time, and that should be the dominant motivated, motivator to invest. Um, that Once you get access to that compound interest, um, in a growth asset, whether it's shares, and I would include property here as well, I think you've got to have a mix of the two, um, then you can really grow your wealth over time. That's the main thing, the main objective of all investors. Now, of course, you're going to have setbacks uh, and they will all feel very gloomy, whether it's the 1970s when the Brady Bunch got canned, my favourite TV show, and <laughs> I just had to settle for reruns of uh, Marsha and the rest of the Brady Bunch. Um other things happened as well, of course. Uh, that period, the Aussie share market fell 59% uh, into 1974 when the Brody Bunch was canned. Uh, <laughs> lots of other ones as well. The 87 crash, GFC, uh, 1930s, World War II, blah, blah, blah. All those things happened, but yeah, for someone who stood the course or took advantage of those dips, they did fantastically well. Uh, no one, I love this quote, no one has become rich by investing in bank deposits. <laughs> you don't do that. So... Bottom line in all of this is just a reminder, you have to make the most. As an investor, the key is to make the most of the magic of compound interest. Don Stammerer, who is an economist, uh, who was around when I started my career, drilled this into me. But the other aspect, of course, which is what something Don Stammerer would also say, is don't get blown off by the cycle. Always allow there's going to be swings up and down. Uh, don't get blown off by those swings. Don't get ultra gloomy just because things are turned down. And by the same token, don't get super bullish just because things are turned up at the top. So you've got to make sure you don't get thrown off by the cycle and make the classic mistake many investors make, which is to sell at the, sell at the, uh, sell, sell at the bottom. Sell high, and buy, buy low. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to do the opposite. Buy low, sell high. 
Shane, I just want to pick up on a point you mentioned earlier. You talked about some relief from the stage three ta- tax cuts that, that mm. could come through. Could you just explain what your take on 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 the impact of those tax cuts will be, and 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 what sort of benefit you think invest? Oh well, just the general population will feel from yeah. that. Yeah, like the the tax cuts. Like the original plan was a high income earner, someone earning over one hundred eighty thousand would get something like nine thousand a year. That's been halved roughly, but there's more skewed down towards low and middle income earners, which. I mean, you can get into all sorts of debates about this philosophically because it was a stage three of a three-phase tax cuts, which were in, which of the first two were aimed mainly at low- and middle-income earners. This one was for higher-income earners. So it sort of messed up that framework. But by the same token, you will get some boost to the economy by giving more in the way of relief to low- and middle-income earners who tend to spend more of their, of their income. So it, it will inject money into the economy. Um, I don't think it's enough to cause a huge surge in inflation and by and large the Reserve Bank and Treasury and Canberra should have already allowed for it because the Stage 3 tax cuts aren't new. They've been around for a while. It's just been the mix of them has been changed a bit. So I think it will provide a bit of confidence for households from the middle of the year along with lower interest rates and that will help improve the growth outlook as we go into 2025. But it's probably not something enough that, that I don't think it's enough to derail uh, prospects for rate cuts. The other thing is to note that these are tax cuts. They're not the same as the Lamington or the low and middle income tax offset where you've got a $1,000 tax refund, uh, all other things being equal. Once you fill in your tax return, these will be spread out over time. Um, and so the impact will, will spread, be spread right through the financial year and then going forward rather than all occurring in one big hit. Not quite the, the helicopter money. No, it's, it's not a helicopter drop where you, you get a big cheque in the mail. Yeah. You'll just see a, a, a modest improvement in your take-home pay. All right, Shane, well, we might get on into the three regular questions that we ask our guests each episode. As I've been doing the last few shows, I've been keeping them pretty consistent but tweaking one or two uh, for our guests just to, to zone in on their area of expertise. But we might start with a regular one. Can you start by sharing a story from a big win or a big loss? What happened and what did you learn? Well, a big loss for me was investing in tech stocks in 2000. I got hyped up by all the excitement uh, that was around at that point in time. And uh, the company I work for happened to be launching a tech fund, as many Australian fund managers did, uh, in 2000, of what course. What could the, go wrong? Yeah, what could go wrong? Of course, they, they started working on these things two or three years before, but by the time they got around to actually launching them, it takes a while to get these funds to market in Australia. Uh, I think it was launched uh, in the week that NASDAQ peaked, uh, NASDAQ being the, the main focus at that point in time. A lot of hype around, a lot of it turned out to be justified. Yeah, look at the sort of technology we're using today. Uh, they, they were the sort of things that we dreamt about back in uh, 1999. Um, mobile phones, uh, smartphones rather, uh, tablets, uh, Zoom, Teams, you know, all this sort of stuff that everyone's getting huge benefit from these days. And the problem is that the benefit didn't come quickly enough um, and then the market uh, collapsed. And I think the mistake I made in investing in that fund was getting carried away with the hype and the obviously the crowd. And so it just reminded me of the importance of not jumping in when everyone was exuberant, you know, be sceptical of the crowd. Um, I, I might have concluded, uh, having looked at what happened to the Nifty 50 in 1972, they then collapsed in 1973-74, and Nifty 50 was the 
Avon's and uh, Polaroids and 3M and uh, a lot of them still around, McDonald's, Gillette, uh, a lot of them still around, but some of them aren't, uh, or they're just shadows of their former self, Xerox and so on. But if you had held on to that gr- a group of the, the top 50, the nifty 50, held on to it for 20 years <laughs> into the, uh, the 1990s, you would have actually got your money back. And so you could have argued the same thing with tech. But the problem is that the fund managers closed them down, and that's what happened to me here. I get, I get uh, my money back or what was left of it. NASDAQ went from 5000 to 1000 or something like that. You're, 80% you're, fall and similar. 20, similar for 20 cents back. Yeah, you get 20 cents back. <laughs> and you, and if, if I, I had a view, well, I'm just going to leave it in here and I reckon I'll end up like the nifty 50. But they closed it and uh, I... I was given the 20 cents back. So not such a good experience. So you've got to be sceptical of those sorts of things. If you are going to invest for the long term uh, and buying at the top, you've got to make sure that the vehicle you invest in is not going to be closed on you halfway through uh, and closed to the point when you've got a loss there. But I think the key lesson from all of that for me was to avoid getting sucked in by the crowd. Avoid the hype. Shane, what do you think investors are overlooking or have wrong about markets or the economy right now? It's, it's a harder one. Sometimes you can look at them and say, look at investors and what markets are doing and say, that, like, they're, they're dead wrong here. At the moment, I, I struggle to answer that question. Yes, there's a lot of hype around tech and that does get me a little bit concerned, particularly AI, uh, concerned in the short term. You, know, the, the, you get to a point where the profits aren't there to back it up and then you get a, a, a pullback. But um, it's a relatively minor point and I, I think we are radically different today compared to 1999 uh, you look at the PE on NASDAQ, back then it was 100 plus, <laughs> dot coms were infinity, mm. whereas you look at PE day today on NASDAQ, it's what, 30 times, Ford P is about 30 times, uh, you know, biggest uh, stock that everyone might say is in a bubble, and NVIDIA, its profits uh, went up 400% or something, um, so this is not the dot coms, this is real stuff actually happening. So yeah, that, that is a question I've struggled with. Um, I don't think markets are getting over it. If you'd asked me this question a few months ago, I, I probably would have said markets are getting a bit ahead of themselves in terms of pricing in central bank rate cuts. Mm. But I can't say that now because those rate cuts have now been wound back to levels that you regard as, as more reasonable. Within range. Um, so maybe maybe neutral at the moment? Maybe you think like I, I, it, It's neutral. I, I, I struggle to sort of... Um, like I... I, I like to see hype or excess anywhere. Yeah, hype or you know, some people say, oh, it's inevitable, it's going to be a recession. But I lived through 94, 95, massive rise in interest rates. Everyone's talking about a recession. And then we come out the other side and the sun comes out. Central banks have gone too far, but it didn't crash economies. And we sort of sailed on and they cut interest rates. And then we had the mid uh, second half of the 1990s, which was fantastic uh, for investors. Yeah, a few bumps along the way, LTCM, emerging markets and so on. But it, it could turn out that way this time around again, even though sitting here right now we are feeling fairly nervous about things. You know, it's interesting. I mean, people spent a lot of time talking about the mortgage cliff that was the fixed rate mortgage yeah. cliff that was coming. And I'm sure some people are definitely finding it hard out there. But it, you know, it's a little bit like, y, I don't know if you recall Y2K, like the world was going to end when things yeah. ticked over in 2000. Same with the, the, the mortgage cliff. Um, people have adjusted their behaviour ahead of time. That's right. Uh, and there was enough other people to keep things going along the way. I mean, there's still worries about it, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly didn't turn out to be anywhere near as bad as, as had been feared. Um, and it could turn out the same this time around. There is a history of monetary tightening leading to accidents and then recessions. Uh, 
But there also are a few episodes where they raised interest rates and then had the so-called soft landing, and the mid-1990s was an example of that. Mission Impossible. That's right. <laughs> Perhaps it is. <laughs> well, Shane, we're going to um, give you the opportunity to run the Australian economy for a day, given uh, the outpouring of support that you received at the, uh, on, on social media from uh, cracking through 40 years of service. So you've earned the right to, 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 to have a, a policy decision. So... If you could make one change to policy around the Australian economy right now, what would that be and, and why would you make it? Well, given that I'm running things for a day, I, I'd rejig the whole tax system. Talk me through it. Uh, well, it's quite simple. We in Australia have this massive reliance on income tax, not enough on, on, uh, on indirect tax. The problem with that is that it acts as a distortionary impact on the economy. A GST, a sales tax, is, is neutral. If you levy that sales tax of 10% on all items, it, it doesn't change people's spending decisions because they're all taxed at the same amount. Whereas an income tax gr- dramatically distorts people's uh, decisions to work or companies' decisions to invest. Um, if you're at the high end and you lose half your income in tax, you say, oh, I'm going to retire or I'm going to relocate to Singapore, as I know colleagues have done, where I only pay 30 cents in the dollar. Or if you're at the lower end, you might be on welfare, unemployment benefits, and suddenly you find you lose them because you've got to pay this, uh, you go beyond a certain level, you've got to pay more tax, go beyond, was it 18,000 you pay going to be 16% tax. So I, 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 would, uh, I, I would do what the IMF and the OECD have been telling us to do for years now. I would raise the GST to 15%. Uh, I would levy it on all items, including health and education, because at the moment it excludes a whole bunch of things and it's actually applying to a diminishing part of the economy. So I'd raise the GST to 15% on all items. I would then uh, push out the tax free fre- threshold, probably well into the 20s, I don't know what the number would be, but it, it gets pushed out and I'd lower all the tax scales and push out all the thresholds and I'd put the top marginal tax rate probably at, well, I poor earning 39 cents in the dollar. And hopefully that GST revenue would also pay or enable another change, which is to uh, eliminate, help the states eliminate stamp duty on residential property. So, so I, I would undertake a fundamental review of our tax system more weight on the GST, less on income tax. Obviously, an argument against that would be it hits low-income earners because a, a GST is regressive, but you would do that, you would address that issue by pushing out the tax-free threshold and lowering the tax rates at the lower end as well as the higher end, and I would compensate those on welfare and fixed incomes um, for uh, those the, on welfare. The additional hit of the, the, the yeah, raised the, GST. Yeah, the, the GST rise. So if you get a one-off rise, which would be uh, – we did the same thing in 2000. So you, you're putting GST on health and education, so you've got a bit of an impact there and a 5% here. So on average, it's about 7%. You'd give them 7% of their income um, as a government compensation, one-off uh, government compensation. So th- th- there's things you can do there to ease the pain there, but I'd also look at the, G- the, the stamp beauty issue, uh, remove the stamp beauty – possibly order the states to shift over to land, land tax underpinned by the federal government because you've got that, that revenue shortfall in the interim. The importance of doing that is that stamp beauty is, again, a massively distortionary tax, huge hurdle to getting into the property market, huge hurdle stopping empty nesters from selling down their home when it should be made available to families to get into. Uh, so we really need to undertake that reform. And I'd look at some of the uh, tax concessions. Um, I, to be honest with you, I would not tax 
franking credits. It's Paul Keating's best reform. Fantastic thing for Australia. Should never be changed. No way should we go back to the double taxation of corporate profits. Uh, I would leave trust structures. I would leave the superannuation concessions. Um, there may be an argument to cap the number of properties you can negatively gear. You hear about 15 properties, <laughs> it's probably a bit too excessive, but basically I'd leave it unchanged. I would, though, look at the capital gains tax discount because it is a bit generous and maybe return to the Paul Keating approach of indexing it to inflation. Uh, the other change I would make is I would index all the brackets going forward on my new tax scales to uh, 2.5%, which is the inflation target. I got this argument, uh, actually, from Westpac's new chief economist, <laughs> Lucy Ellis. Uh, I would have said index it to inflation, but she, she reminded me if you index it to 2.5%, it locks in in people's minds that 2.5% is the inflation target, um, and it's a good flat rate to index it to. So you could probably also argue you can index the, uh, the capital gains to that before you tax it. So there's a bunch of reforms that I, I would do there, but it's basically rearranging our tax system to make it fit for uh, fit for the times, whereas the current tax system is way uh, beyond its use-by date and no longer fit for purpose. And I think if you did that, we'd end up with a far more efficient economy. Um, you'd end up with far more incentivised workers where they're not losing 50 cents in the dollar if you're at the high end and, and uh, you're not worried about coming off welfare at the lower end you'd end up with a far more sensible GST arrangement, we'd end up with a far more sensible property market. I think there'd be huge benefits from that and it's it's a reform that could give us a big chunk of the productivity boost that we really need at this point in time where our productivity performance has waned and we need to get that back if we want to see our living standards grow. Well, Shane, I think that's an, a great point um, and some interesting thoughts to leave people with. So I'm going to Thank you very much for coming on the Rules of Investing today. So my own personal congratulations for your 40 years of tenure and thank you for all the time to you and Deanna that you've invested in um, sharing your insights with uh, the Livewire audience and the listeners on this podcast today. Thanks, James, and thanks for having me and, and certainly thanks for having us on Livewire over all these years. I think we've been, uh, well, I've been coming along and Deanna more recently coming along since uh, Livewire's inception. It's great to see that it's doing so well. For all those folks that have been listening, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, As I mentioned, Shane uh, has been a a great uh, sharer of information on economics for four decades now. If you are enjoying the Rules of Investing, I'd love you to subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date with all the episodes that we've got planned for the year ahead. 